Hey, I'm Dr. Joel Kahn, and I am with SoFlow Vegans. And welcome back to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Joel Kahn, a practicing cardiologist and a clinical professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine. Also joining us for this episode is our media coordinator, Alba Mendez. In this episode, we discuss his journey to becoming America's heart healthy MD, the cost of heart disease, the role a plant-based diet plays in healing itself, and his future plans. If this is your first time listening, we want to invite you to check out our homepage at soflowvegans.com podcast. You'll find links to all of the platforms where you can find our show, as well as information about our past episodes. You can also visit our community page where you'll find deals from our growing list of partners. Our community page can be found at soflowvegans.com community. So with that being said, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Joel Kahn on the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And welcome back to another exciting episode of the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I'm Sean Russell, host and founder of SoFlow Vegans. And as always, we have our co-host and media coordinator. Hey guys, it's Alba. Welcome back to the podcast. So Alba, I'm going to give you as always the honors of introducing our guest for today's podcast. Well, this time it's somebody that is very near and dear to my heart. The reason why is because for the ones who follow me on social media know that I am a nurse, but more specifically, a cardiac cath lab nurse, but it's none other than Dr. Joel Kahn. Yay! Welcome. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'll leave in the blog. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a tradition here at the SoFlow Vegans podcast. The first question is always a journey into your vegan origin like how did you first become plant-based what was that seed that was planted in your life that made you go down this path this is a vegan podcast i thought it was scheduled as the carnivore hour are you serious Uh, oh oh, i'm just trying to reach sean's energy level here but okay but my journey as you label it sean uh and alba uh, is a quick little but interesting story, and it's not the typical one. I was 400 pounds, or I had a health crisis. I grew up in a home in Detroit. We kept kosher. I didn't mix meat and milk. I didn't eat ham. I was just a normal kid that did that. And I went to Ann Arbor in 1977, quite a ways ago, and walked in the dormitory. I had already been accepted in a medical school in a special program. I was kind of like interested in health. I was going to be a doctor. And uh, they had a salad bar and they had meat. And the meat was the color of a gym shoe. And the salad bar was bright and beautiful. It actually was a pretty good salad bar. Uh, And the other very popular restaurant in Ann Arbor had this gigantic salad bar. Long story short, about a week into undergrad, I was a salad baritarian. I didn't really know about vegan or vegetarians. Uh, And my mother and father around the same time went to the Pritikin Center in California. And my mother started making lentil loaf at home instead of meatloaf. It all happened around the same time. So uh, karma, energy, the world was united. 
Uh, I had a cute girlfriend at the time who was in the same experience. She adopted it. She felt better right away. I think she had a little lactose, whatever. And she's been my wife for 38 years. That worked out pretty well. The salad bar dating worked out well. So the long story short is I've stopped eating meat back then. I was in med school. Somebody gave me John Robbins' book, A Diet for New America in the 80s. I said, wow, this isn't just about the salad bar. There's like environment and animals and even some health data I hadn't heard of, like the Pritikin Center my parents had been to. And um, I started practicing cardiology in 1990, long time ago. But that's when Dean Ornish, we can talk about it, published this like amazing study that you could reverse established bad heart blockage, which I had now become an expert on, uh, with a plant diet and lifestyle. And I said, this is like too strange. You know, I adopted, my parents adopted, now I'm a cardiologist and Ornish has created something very unique. Uh, so I've been rocking and rolling and giving out books and medical articles since 1990. And my last burger was when Jimmy Carter was president. That was a long time ago. Oh, wow. So you, you're right. You, your, your journey is different from most of the stories that I hear because it sounds like usually the difficulty people have is when they decide to adopt this lifestyle, they have to contend with the people in their life that aren't um, adopting the lifestyle. But it sounds like you, you were able to have that support as you were moving along. Yeah, I had it in the social family sphere, you know, trying to be a medical resident, medical student in Ann Arbor wasn't so hard, but I went down to Dallas mm. and I think I ate more okra than any human in the world for three years because I can just remember the VA, the VA medical center, the only thing I could find to eat was okra as an example. And then I went to Kansas City, you know, that's the barbecue capital of the world, at least one of them, and that was a tough year. So there were external you know, situations. It wasn't like now, if you do call ahead anywhere, they're either already gonna have a planned option or they'll get you one. Back then, uh, my favorite quick story, just for your audience, I won a research award about 1982, got a trip to Washington, D.C. with my chief of medicine, one of the most famous MDs in the United States, big deal. And it was at the Senate building in a Hubert Humphrey dining room that there must have been people eating at for, you know, 100 plus years. And it was elegant. It was 100 of us. They brought out prime rib under a sterling silver dome for everybody. But I had called ahead. And they had under my dome, I swear, a Mrs. Paul's peas and carrots tray in the stainless tinfoil, you know, microwavable kind of container. And the table looked and, you know, <laughs> it was like that was a tough moment in the 1980s trying to be a vegan. So there were there were there were challenges, but uh, it created a little humor out of that event. That sounds to me like you uh, come from a Jewish family. Correct. That's the kosher clue. Because I come from an SDA family. Ah, there you go. Friday and, nights. Uh, exactly. And like you have your Shabbat dinner, we have our Sabbath dinner as well. And uh, most of in the, in the Adventist community, they're more than 50% either vegetarians or vegans because the original, you know, if you want to get into philosophy and religion, the original. This one, I know it. You got it. Yeah. And then on top of that, based on what you said when you were in medical school, so you must have been in your early 20s, and I converted to veganism in my early 20s as well in nursing school. Yeah, but pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, it it's very interesting how that happens it's when you're a, it's just a, by another mother. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just interesting how that happens when you are uh, trying to study medicine and then all these things kind of start coming out, which is something that I wanted to get into because you are known as America's Heart Healthy MD. How did that come about? Yeah, that actually, um, you know, I don't have that tattooed yet on my uh, right butt cheek like Bianca Taylor has tattooed vegan. But if anybody well, knows you that. You wouldn't be able to get um, buried in a Jewish cemetery if you had tattoos. Wow, you know that. You're pretty knowledgeable. Yeah, uh, the observant do avoid tattoos. Uh, the Lord gave you the body. You're supposed to return it uh, to the uh, creator in the same form. That's very wise of you. So I, I do not have tattoos, but at any rate, I wrote for the Reader's Digest about eight years ago. I said, you know what? I've been doing this plant-based thing personally for 30 plus years and in practice at that point for over 20 years, now 30. And I had this hankering to start writing, talking, and maybe get a book out. And I got Reader's Digest to uh, accept a book offer and I wrote for the magazine. So my title in Reader's Digest magazine monthly column for a couple of years was America's Healthy Heart Doc. Thank you, Reader's Digest. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about that. Since you come from the cardiac side and now I'm in this um, cardiac cath lab, I get to see a lot, of, a lot of structures of the heart that probably from my ER trauma background in the past, I wouldn't have seen it. But for the ones who don't know, talk about the structures of the heart. What is a widowmaker, for example? And I go through this with every patient. I don't assume that they, and I will say that I am a practicing cardiologist. I, oh, so you are still practicing. You're still performing uh, procedures. Yeah, I have a very vibrant practice in suburban Detroit. It's all preventive with a very strong plant-based focus, but it's very, very vibrant. People come from all over. I'm very pleased with that. So I take out my fist. Here's your heart beating 60, 70 times a minute. Turns out the heart is about the size of your fist. On top of the heart are three major arteries. They're not as big as your fingers maybe about as big as a number two pencil. Uh, one is called the right coronary or right heart artery. One is called the left anterior descending or widowmaker artery. Widowmaker to scare people to get out of Wendy's and McDonald's right away. It goes right down the front of the heart and it's the biggest. And then there's a one that goes around the back or circumnavigates the back. It's called the circumflex artery. And they were named that long ago. And everybody's born with perfectly clean heart arteries. There's never an exception. But there's pretty good data by age 18 to 22. A lot of us are starting to develop plaque or uh, an abnormal substance that can slowly start to take that number two pencil and make it inside a little smaller, a little smaller. We know that because there were soldiers that died in the Korean War, in the Vietnam War, in Desert Storm and such that had autopsies after an explosion. It wasn't a heart death, but they did describe how frequently they found plaque or beginnings of blockage in heart arteries of young people. And there's another study very famous called Bogalusa. You can take an 18-year-old in Louisiana, Mississippi, do a little ultrasound of their artery to their brain, carotid artery, and you'll see little bits of plaque, unfortunately. But it's, it's not there by accident, it's there by food toxicity, environmental toxicity, smoking toxicity, stress toxicity. Uh, most of the time, genetics play a small part. So that's the anatomy of the heart. Inside the heart, there are four valves. They're relatively unaffected by diet. There's a little exception to that, but relatively. There's obviously the muscle of the heart that's relatively unaffected by diet till you clog your heart artery 
then you have no blood flow, then you're having a heart attack and your heart muscle dies. So your diet does ultimately affect your heart muscle, which you want to keep clean and healthy to your 150. And specifically, as far as your diet is concerned, what are some of the main things we should be looking out for, or rather saying avoiding, so we don't clog our arteries and, and run the risk of having cardiac disease? Well, we didn't learn this stuff, you know, in the good book of Genesis, you know, long ago. Uh, most of it has come on since about World War II. There was a pretty good spike in heart attacks after World War II. Soldiers came back with cigarettes. Economy started to pick up. Soon thereafter, you know, McDonald's and places open. And scientists saw, wow, you know, we're filling our hospital with heart attacks. 40, 50, 60 year olds, not just the United States. In fact, there was an explosion of heart attacks in Finland where they ate a very, very uh, specific diet and smoked a lot. I'll talk about that in a minute. So our government in the United States started funding studies like the Framingham Heart Study in Massachusetts. And they started funding the Adventist Health Study in Loma Linda. Uh, the first one was 1948 and still ongoing. And the second one was 1958 and still ongoing. In the 50s, our president, Eisenhower, had a massive heart attack. That stimulated a lot of funding to figure it out. Long story short, both studies came up with five big factors why you might go from clean arteries to clogged arteries, either at age 20 or age 50. Do you smoke? Do you have fitness in your life? What's your blood pressure? Elevated's bad. What's your blood sugar? Elevated's bad. What's your blood cholesterol? Elevated's bad. Finally, does mom, dad, brother, sister, did they have a heart attack, stroke, young age, 40, 45, 50, 55? Uh, those are the big ones. That's still, even though that data came out 50 years ago, that's still usually what a doctor in 2020 is going to ask, those couple of items. Now we know the list is longer. It may take, uh, we know actually, although it's hard to control, air pollution is a factor, sleep is a factor, your waistline is a factor, stress is a factor, uh, certainly the quality of your food. So we've, we've got a longer list. You need a little deeper dive to really know nowadays if you're at risk for heart disease. But um, that's what causes it. And we think, you know, 20% of it, just as an average number, is the genetic inheritance you get from the moment you're conceived, what genes the dad and mom contribute. There's a gene called APOE. If both parents gave you one called E4, it might raise your risk of heart disease. Most people don't have that. There's a gene that gives you something called lipoprotein A. It's a kind of cholesterol in the blood, but 25% of people get that one, so that's actually pretty common. Um, but we still know 80% of it is as my friend who's here at the conference with me, Dr. David Katz from the Yale system, calls it fork, fingers, feet. Fork, what do you eat? Plants win, meats lose. Fingers, do you smoke? And feet, do you have a fitness protocol? Whether it's walking, dancing, gardening, Pilates, bar classes, boxing, you know, whatever, swimming. But forks, finger, feet are the 80% that you control, and that will dramatically determine if you're moving towards heart disease or moving away. Your genes load the gun, but your lifestyle pulls the trigger. Said like a good, so slow, intelligent nurse. That's true. <laughs> Thank you. Some people credit Dr. Oz with that analogy. Some people credit uh, Caldwell Esselstyn. But just to make the case, 
if you you can actually nowadays measure the genes your parents gave you at a relatively inexpensive cost, $250, I can do a panel on you, spit in a cup. I can tell you your major cancer genes, your major heart genes, and some other genes that affect how you tolerate prescription drugs. Used to be thousands of dollars. But let's say you know that and you inherited some higher risk genes, the lipoprotein A gene and the APOE gene. Well, if you know that and your lifestyle's bad, you smoke, you're sedentary, and you love your McDonald's, you're in trouble. But if you find out, or even if you assume, I might have got some genes because dad had a heart attack at age 48, but I go to the gym, I love my salads, I get my sleep, I don't smoke, you really have offset the risk. Now, the winner is good genes, good lifestyle. Wear your seatbelt and your bike helmet, you're probably going to be around for a long time. My youngest heart attack was last year. He was 29, complete, almost complete on um, occlusion, CTO of the RCA at 29. I couldn't believe it. You can be 21 in, you know, in Korea or Vietnam and have you know, disease by the time you're 28, 29, you know, whether it's one more cigarette, one rich fettuccine Alfredi meal, you're yelling at your spouse, it's cold outside, you're shoveling snow, boom, you know, there's your heart attack happening. That's tragic. So what usually when we have these conversations or whether I'm at a conference and we're hearing about, you know, the risks of your diet and your sedentary lifestyle, one can draw the conclusion that by going vegan or going plant-based, it's a cure-all. You know, I'm, going, I'm no longer eating meat. I'm out of the risk factor, risk factor. The majority of the people listening to this podcast are, you know, in that journey, somewhere in that journey. You know, at the very beginning are, you know been it for years. What should someone who is vegan or plant-based look out for? Are the same risk factors there? Like, how does that change? Right. It's really a good question because I have a little, I do not call um, the person eating plant-based bulletproof. And there are some medical doctors that will say you have achieved a bulletproof status, meaning you're protected from the big one, stroke, heart attack, cancer. Um, I think you've uh, shifted the odds greatly to better health and lower risk of these diseases, lower risk of being in the hospital, lower risk of needing medication. But I feel for the person that gets frustrated, you know, I'm really trying and I fill my plate with whole foods and I make my food at home, but my cholesterol is still 230 or I still weigh 180 pounds and I don't want to, or my blood pressure still requires medication. I have had a plant-based medical clinic focusing on heart disease for 30 years. I do not think it's bulletproof. Um, there are, you know, number one, there's variability in exactly what people are eating and exercising, their stress and their social situation. There's differences, as I said, in their diet. And you, I really try and go deep exactly what's breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, how late, how early, you incorporate any fasting, what are you drinking? I mean, the whole thing. I really do know what my people are taking in, at least what they're telling me. But ultimately, the genetics are not without some input and uh, social circumstances. If you live in an urban center that doesn't have sidewalks or community parks, exercise may be tough. And, you know, these are real factors that have come up in studies. Uh, nonetheless, to answer your question, I think plant-based eaters should get health checkups. I think, uh, you know, not in an emergency room. If you do it right, you won't be there. You should, you know, get a home blood pressure cuff. Make sure your blood pressure is good. Either go to a health fair or go to a 
medical clinic and know your cholesterol, your blood sugar, and some basic numbers. I'd suggest a couple extra numbers. There's a blood test for inflammation called high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Make sure that's normal. It could be your dental health, which is a factor we know in heart disease more and more. And that blood test can help give you a clue. And I mentioned once, I like this blood test called lipoprotein A. It's a genetic cholesterol that can slap you awake to say, hey, you really do need to grab onto a super healthy lifestyle, including a plant diet. You know, maybe you should have your B12 level, your vitamin D level checked if you're 100% plant exclusive. But in my clinic where I have plant eaters and non-plant eaters as patients, it's uniform to be missing nutrients, whether you're a plant eater or not. You know, it's not just us. It's America. Uh, we don't get sunshine and we eat a lot of factory made food or, you know, factory farm vegetables that aren't really the garden uh, quality and organic quality that a couple generations ago were more common. Anyways, get your colonoscopy. You know, mm. you're not guaranteed not to get colorectal cancer. Get a thermogram or a mammogram. You're not guaranteed. And in my field, just to answer, I don't want to run on, but I'm so passionate about this topic. There is a test that will identify for a person if they are developing heart disease years before a heart attack, years before a bypass, years before they might get symptoms like chest pressure. So if you think about it, somebody listening has been at their doctor for a complete physical, and they might hear the words, here's your script to get a mammogram, here's the doctor's name who can do a colonoscopy on you, you're about 50. You're not going to hear them say, here's that test that will tell you if your heart arteries are getting clogged up. Yet there is, in South Florida, in Michigan, anywhere, a CT scan of the heart, a CAT scan, that takes 10 seconds, involves no needle, no injection, no dye. You just hold your breath and you go home. From $1,000, that test now is around $75 to $100 in most medium to large hospitals. I can name them for you in the South Florida area, but you can get them pretty much anywhere. And you get something called a coronary artery calcium score. And if you do that around age 45, 50, and it's a beautiful zero, you really are in a good position to lead a heart-healthy life and such. And if it comes back 700 or 900 or 400, it's a number that tells you how much damaging calcium is in your heart arteries. It really is the truth serum. So it's been around for 25 years. Last shout out, there's a Netflix documentary called The Widowmaker. It's a really neat documentary about how that CAT scan got developed at universities and why universities aren't really promoting it. It's not a moneymaker for any hospital nowadays. It's just a lifesaver. So that's my little soapbox because I really encourage widespread recognition that there is a heart screening test that's simple, yet family docs and internists might actually fight a patient about getting the script to go and get it done. And then as a piggyback on that, there, so you're telling you go out there, get your, you know, annual checkups, you know, if you're, you know, do colonoscopy, um, right. take care of yourself. Now, right. one of the things I do hear from the community is a, there's a distrust for physicians who aren't plant-based, based off experience. They'll go there, they'll say, oh, you're on a plant-based diet or you're vegan, okay, then you're missing all these things and they kind of sway them away from the lifestyle. So what would you say to people who have that in their head or may hear stories and are afraid to go and see a doctor? 
Right. And, you know, you, you called it a piggyback. Can we call it a chickpea back for this interview? Yes. I just want to keep it all at home. I'm just joking. Um, it is a real issue. Um, I get asked all the time, not just in my local Detroit peeps, but by Instagram messaging and Twitter messaging, do you know a plant-based doctor? There are websites. I think it's plantbaseddocs.org is one of them that you can put in your city and find in a radius. But I'm not sure you have to, because there aren't that many. I mean, in my suburban Detroit, I can't find a dozen that I can refer to. Some take insurance, some don't, you know, to get people that want to be plant-based, get a primary care plant-based doctor. If you're educated, you're probably not going to be asked about your diet when you go see your doctor. So, I mean, if you're, if you're not the stereotypical, I hate to say it, vegan that tells your doctor in three seconds what you're doing, the odds are nutrition's not going to come up. Um, and I don't think you should rely on most primary care providers, could be a nurse practitioner or physician assistant, because the odds are they're at a CrossFit gym and they're going to try and talk you into paleo because you're protein deficient and you aren't eating grilled chicken and you aren't getting enough salmon in your diet. I agree with you. But if you've got the resources, information like you're putting out, VegFest, you've got a couple books from some of the, you know, the leading health authorities, whether it's Forks Over Knives or Dr. Esselstyn, Bernard, we can go on. If you got a couple good cookbooks and you're eating the rainbow diet, you know, you really don't need a doctor to help you unless you're really actively reversing disease. I mean, if you're on three diabetic drugs and you're fired up to see if you can make a input on it, you probably should work with somebody medical because if you're successful and your blood pressure blood sugar or pressure starts dropping, you might need somebody to advise you on, you know, gently reducing your medicines until you're really seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. So um, look for that plant-based doctor, but you'll be frustrated. In my field of cardiology, yes, there are plant-based cardiologists. There is no central website. But when I go to medical meetings, you know, it's again, under 20 that I could name quickly around the country. There's more, but we're just not uh, very obvious on the public or internet spectrum. So let's talk about the prevalence of cardiac issues or um, heart issues in the U.S. I mean, because we know that it goes around in the Western world. We know Australia and Europe, but then here in the U.S., let's talk about that. Heart disease? Uh-huh. We're fact- number one. We're number one. Absolutely. We're keeping that title. Mm. 100 years from 1918 to 2018, heart disease was the number one cause of death in the United States, and it still remains in 19, and you know we'll see in 20. But I expect, although you know there's no great uh, desire for this, but cancer and heart disease are the top one and two, and they run neck and neck. In Canada, cancer deaths are a little higher than heart disease deaths. So every man and every woman listening to this needs to consider their risk, even with a healthy lifestyle, you've reduced your risk, but you still need to consider it. Because, you know, 10 times more women die of heart disease than breast cancer. And they're both very important missions and very important to consider your lifestyle and get appropriately screened to find out as early as possible if you're at risk or even developing the disease. But heart disease remains uh, the big elephant in the room. Some people know this. I put this on my plant-based 
I said elephant, and I should probably put, uh, use a non-animal term. I was going to say something the after big, you're done. I, I saw your eyebrows go up. I saw that. <laughs> the, the big lion's mane mushroom in the room. Um, some people know this. The number three cause of death in the United States, at least according to a study from Johns Hopkins, is actually death in the hospital from medical errors. That's number three in the United States. Mm-hmm. Wrong blood transfusion, antibiotic reaction, bed sores, sepsis, wrong operation. Uh, wrong medicine. Um, I hate to say it, it happens. So be as healthy as possible so you drive by hospitals but not drive in hospitals is a very good life uh, other than for the appropriate testing that hopefully you're in for 30 minutes. Uh, And number four is usually lung disease like emphysema and uh, asthma, pretty much lifestyle smoking and other factors. Um, So heart disease is a big one. What's heart disease? You should worry predominantly about clogged heart arteries. That is the disease, that's the CAT scan, that's the Framingham data and Adventist data. Now, you know, there are a few other heart diseases like bad valves, but they're less lifestyle related and far less common. And what are some of the leading causes of you getting heart disease? Yeah, so um, the genetics can be there. There are people that eat well, but their cholesterol is 400. Uh, they're eating prudently because that happens. When I was training, it was said to be one in 500 persons inherited a gene, a familial hyperlipidemia that could raise your cholesterol that high. Now it's estimated, reevaluated, one in 250. Mm-hmm. But in a room of 1,000, that's four people. This other cholesterol that very few people know much about in, two, in 2020 called lipoprotein A is one in four people. That's 1.8 billion people in the world. And you'll be hearing a lot more about it because I have a new book coming out on that topic, the first book by a medical doctor on this genetic cholesterol. It'll be coming out in March of 2020. I'm excited about that. And it has 50 wonderful plant-based recipes, so it'll be good either way, whether you want to read the beginning of the book or just eat the end of the book. Um, Can you send me a copy, please? And I I would like it signed and dedicated to the best plant-based nurse on this earth. Right, and Kona. Don't forget Kona. (laughs) And Kona. (laughs) Love uh, Dr. Uh, Joel Kahn, please. Okay, I just don't have a copy yet. It's uh, <laughs> in press right now. Um, so we, you know, there's genetics. They're obviously eating a diet. So the diet. Let's just spend two seconds. The diet that creates clogged arteries was not known when this spike in heart attacks started occurring. A very famous scientist and others, but Ansel Keys, some mm-hmm. people on the web hate him. He's dead. He lived to age 100 and died, I think, 1994. But during his very uh, robust research career in Minneapolis, uh, PhD, uh, two PhDs, he studied Americans, he studied Italians, he studied others, and found dramatic differences in the risk of heart attack. Um, In Japan, they ate a simple diet that was naturally low in animal products and fat calories, that extremely low Uh, risk of heart attack at the same time, 1960s, early 70s, that Finland, as I mentioned, was eating butter and sausage and heavy meats, and they had the highest heart attack risk in the world. Uh, Two things happened. McDonald's moved into Japan, and their heart attack rates have come up a little. They're still low. And a public health education program went into Finland starting in the early 1970s called the North Karelia Public Health Program. 
they were able to drop their rate of heart attack in East Finland by 80% in just five years by putting beans in the sausage and taking some of the fat out by, yes, teaching people not to smoke and maintain their body weight. So it was a remarkably successful program in Finland. So saturated fat is the bullseye, but that's something you can't necessarily see. We're talking cheese is rich in saturated fat. Marbled meats are rich in saturated fat. Egg yolk has some saturated fat and some cholesterol. A very few plants have saturated fat to any degree except coconut oil and palm oil. And though there's not definitive data, most health experts, whether they're vegan or not, suggest limited coconut and palm oil in the diet because of the very high saturated fat burden. Um, chickens high in saturated fat, so is fish, because it's just the nature of animal metabolism and animal flesh. Uh, so those are the foods. Um, and, you know, trans fats have pretty much been eliminated from the diet. They may be the worst sources of fat in the diet for heart disease, but they've pretty much been eliminated. The old Crisco hydrogenated vegetable oil is pretty much out. But, uh, you know, it's cheese, number one. And some baked goods still have lard, very, very rich in saturated fat. So that's a bullseye. Does sugar have a role? Because we eat so much more added sugar. That's not an apple and that's not a banana. That's added sugar in everything from ketchup to barbecue sauce to cereals to, you know, salad dressings. Yes, added sugar, sugar. and soda pop. Studies say they do all relate to heart disease risk. That's the food world. So that's why the food plate to avoid heart disease is largely or completely plant-based. It should be naturally low in total fat, naturally low in saturated fat for sure, and very high in fiber and nutrients and all those beautiful colors that have extra heart-friendly uh, nutritional value. And then you need your fitness, and you need to not smoke, then you need to try and get six, seven hours sleep, then you need to try and keep your waistline under some reasonable control. Um, for example, just to tell you, there's studies from Europe and also studies from Harvard that are very similar. If you want to drop your risk of heart attack, you eat far better than average, a diet rich in fiber from plants and legumes and beans and peas and all the plant-based. You get your fitness, you don't smoke, you keep your waist thin, you sleep at night. You actually are allowed a couple alcoholic beverages a week to gain a little bit of statistical advantage. That's a bit controversial, but it is what the studies show. Although, of course, in the Adventist world and in other populations, that's going to be very uncommon, Muslim world too. It's not necessary. It just is what the data shows. <laughs> so you mentioned how animal, uh, animal, pro, animal um, fats and proteins contribute to you know, diseases of the heart, but what other parts of the body could it potentially impact? Well, anywhere a blood vessel goes, so there are 50,000 miles of arteries in the body, a kind of cool statistic that's twice around the world in each and every one of us. Um, so the blood vessels to the brain, the big ones called the carotids, but more and more we're appreciating that little tiny blood vessels that are frankly difficult to image on a CAT scan or an ultrasound um, can also get affected by the diet, by the blood pressure, by the elevated blood sugar. And a major relationship between Alzheimer's disease and the same list you'd come up for heart attack is very much accepted now, maybe microvascular, little blood vessel dementia. It's very sadly common. Kidney disease. This is an interesting one. Same issue. It's not very common to get your big kidney arteries clogged. It happens. 
but it's not very common. But the little kidney arteries can get clogged up by the diet that raises blood sugar. And that's an animal heavy diet for sure, animal food heavy. There's a very interesting Facebook users group. I'm a member of it. I didn't create it called Natural Kidney Journey. Remarkable stories of serious kidney disease improving or even reversing with plant diets. Uh, they were just featured uh, within the last two weeks on Forks Over Knives. Most people don't think about uh, being able to impact and maybe reverse your advanced kidney disease. Some people are actually already on the point of dialysis with a major shift in diet, but that's emerging. Um, autoimmune disease, thyroid, lupus, and maybe most of the data right now on rheumatoid arthritis. 10, 15 years ago, there was some, but little data. It's increasing. You want to eat a whole food, brightly colored plant diet. You may impact your autoimmune disease. Um, you might one day want to interview Dr. Brooke Goldner, a medical doctor from Houston, has a book called Goodbye Lupus because her own health journey is so remarkable and she helps others with autoimmune disease, a good colleague. And I do refer people to her. She's wonderful. And what role does it play in a, I'm sure it has a role in um, ED, erectile dysfunction. What role does it Oh, I'm so glad we got there. It's such a hard topic to talk about erectile dysfunction. Okay, little pun, sorry. Um, <laughs> there's a couple things to be said. And, you know, either you're perhaps a man listening to this that's concerned or has some problems with erectile dysfunction, or you're in a relationship with a man who has some problems. The statistics are not favorable. 40% of guys by age 40 are having issues. 50% of guys by age 50 just keep marching it up. Um, we know that there are multiple causes of having difficulty with erections and uh, enjoying you know, quality sex. It can be psychological. There can be nerve injuries like long-distance bike riders or accidents. There can be testosterone and other hormonal issues. But blood vessel health is still felt to be the biggest one, and that is the connection. And the science for almost 20 years now, as reported in cardiology and urology literature, real science says, if you ask 100 guys who are having a heart attack, by any chance you have erectile dysfunction and when did it start? The average heart attack sufferer will say, you know what, three, four years ago I noticed I started to have significant difficulties they may have gone to their doctor and gotten that Viagra prescription. Sadly, the light bulb didn't go on. Hmm, that's a clue. Let's do all those labs and let's check your blood pressure and talk about your diet and your fitness and your sleep and your smoking. And maybe we ought to check your heart more thoroughly, electrocardiogram, maybe this CAT scan. We missed this window of opportunity. And ED, Erectile dysfunction is sometimes called the canary in the coal mine. It's an early warning alert system to blood vessels getting sick and going down. So I have a very active men's sexual health clinic because it is exactly the same disease as heart disease. It's just below the waist. So I treat both aspects of it. And is there any reason why it would signs of um, ED would show up? before, you know, unfortunately you have a heart attack or is it because of the size of the veins? I'm coming from a non-medical background. Yeah, it may be. There's different theories why that three to four year gap. Number one, most guys care about what's going on below the waist more than they care about what's going on above the waist. So they ignore all this stuff, but they don't ignore their junk stuff to be very straightforward. 
Number two, it may be that the arteries are smaller than heart arteries. Um, a lot of guys are out there going, no way, man, my arteries are much bigger than heart arteries. But it could be, and that's a theory, so you get the problem earlier than the heart arteries. Um, and finally, there are three big heart arteries. So even when you got disease, sometimes they help each other out. You got pretty much one straight, you know, I-95 highway of blood flow into the pelvis and the male sexual organs will keep it clean air. Um, so it may be that it's just more susceptible. It's just one path gets clogged. You don't have two other arteries to help you out big time. Okay. Or the body will start making collaterals in the heart. The it's heart, like, that's what these help arteries are. Uh, I've like not come across literature that there's much collateral blood vessels to the uh, penis. I said the word. I hope everybody's okay. No, no, not at all. We interviewed uh, Dr. Aaron Spitz, and believe me, that was... Uh, uh, best. Uh, how we it, it was a very interesting uh, podcast because we had a lot of uh, male and female listeners who were sending in their questions for him. So that was one of the things that he's like, nope, check your heart, heart, check your hearts. Fitz will tell you a funny joke about his last name, but it's so double X rated. But, you know, <laughs> I want to go back really quick because you did mention cholesterol. Now, a lot of people don't know. They always say, oh, yeah, my bad cholesterol. But there's right now three different types of cholesterol. There's the good cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, and the extra bad cholesterol. Well, that's an interesting way. So now I've got to come up with, it seem like it's scholarly and I can deal with that. Let's just say this. Originally, um, John Goffman, I just said a name nobody remembers, but John G-O-F-M-A-N uh, basically is credited for figuring out how to measure cholesterol in the blood, which uh -huh. allowed us to do studies because we knew it was in the plaque. Pathologists had you know, been doing autopsies for 100 years, and they talked about atherosclerosis. You cut into an artery, whether it's heart, leg, aorta, you see this gruel. That's what atherosclerosis is. It's oatmeal-like, crumbly, fatty, buttery stuff. Um, and then we could measure that there was cholesterol in those substances, a molecule. But in the 50s, we were able to start measuring your cholesterol level in the blood, and soon thereafter, by spinning it down, we found there was high-density lipoprotein carriers of cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein carriers of cholesterol. That's the LDL and the HDL. And it seemed really simple. When I went to med school in the late 70s, early 80s, it was LDL, L is lousy, it's bad. We really still believe that, actually. And HDL, H is happy or high, and it's good. The H is where things have changed. There is a big lack of uh, understanding uh, that HDL may be protective. You'd like more of it. But yet there are some, particularly women, with very high HDL levels, and the studies say have heart disease, and, and maybe more. There may be, it may be in response to something we don't understand. It could be you have a silent infection or inflammation, and your HDL level goes up, and so when your doctor measures it, it's high but it's in reaction to something. Um, and then the really bad cholesterol, I don't know, you know, we, we would debate what that is. There's a small segment of uh, usually the meat-eating community that will tell you uh, your triglycerides, fasting triglycerides, particularly uh, the ratio of HDL and triglycerides. You want a high HDL and a low triglyceride, that can reflect good insulin sensitivity. Your liver and your muscles are grooving with your carbohydrate metabolism. And if you have a low HDL and a high triglyceride, 
you've got insulin resistance and you're a setup for diabetes and heart disease. That might be one super bad description. I call this one that I've mentioned now three times, lipoprotein little a, one out of every four people. It's not checked unless you ask your doctor. It's not routine yet, although it's inexpensive. It's a blood test. And it can not only affect your arteries, although you may not know this, one out of every seven cases of aortic stenosis, a narrowing of a heart valve, is due to this genetic cholesterol. It has a distinct ability to uh, attach to the aortic valve and cause irritation that leads to getting calcified and disease. So I call that the super bad one because we also don't have a very effective therapy for it. We do have some effective therapies for the high LDL cholesterol, plant-based diets and more. I am giving a talk here in Long Island on the topic, does cholesterol matter? And I'll give you the answer, but don't tell the people in the audience who paid to hear it. Cholesterol matters, but it's not the only thing that matters, which is why you'll occasionally hear of the 102-year-old woman who eats bacon and eggs and smokes and is still okay. Um, it's, it's a complex equation whether you clog your arteries or not. These things are called risk factors. So cholesterol matters, but blood pressure matters, but blood sugar matters, but lipoprotein A matters, but inflammation matters. And actually, we're learning more and more, although the the big ones are the most important, the smoking, the fitness, and your diet. We're learning about other factors. You know, science progresses. You wouldn't be surprised yeah. by that. I mean, and I'm kind of glad that you brought that up because I recently saw yesterday, actually, it was plant-based news about, uh, I think, a carnivore doctor who is like pushing for people to be carnivores, for people to eat only meat. And it was in this show called The Doctors. And I think you were a contributor on that. Yeah. It's shocking. We filmed that episode a few weeks ago. I had a beard because I was doing the uh, Movember beard thing. Uh, if anybody looks it up, it's a great segment. And it, there is this very bizarre but very vibrant movement called the carnivore movement. You know, medical doctors and people that are eating meat three times a day as there's near or complete source of calories. They're very macho and bravado with pictures of tomahawk steaks. There's a orthopedic surgeon from Albuquerque, Sean Baker, MD, who kind of leads the pack. He actually just came out with a book on the topic. I mean, it's there's nothing more emperor wears no clothes than this movement. Um, when Sean Baker was pressured by an appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast, where even Joe Rogan, a non-doctor, said, dude, have you done some blood work on yourself? You've been eating this way for a year and you're a doctor. And Baker said, no, I haven't done any blood work. And when he did, it was awful. Kidney function bad, testosterone bad, cholesterol bad, blood sugar bad. But he blew it off and said, hey, I can swing kettlebells. I'm cool. And he's never repeated his blood work that he's revealed to the public. And then the new one on the block, was the episode I was on that aired uh, just recently. Another medical doctor, happened to be a, a psychiatrist, Paul Saladino, MD, has shifted towards doing nutritional consults and advises people eat only meat to treat their disease. So the show was two girls that had uh, significant skin issues that adopted an all-meat diet and started to feel much better. And Saladino was the doctor advising them and what he fell into a trap, and the trap wasn't set, these are unscripted, was he came on with way too much confidence 
there's so much data. We have so much data, like trying to convince the doctors on the doctor's show of all the data. When finally, Dr. Stork nailed him and said, just tell me what's all this data. And I knew what he was going to say. And he, he bit he bit it and he died. He said, well, there was a study in the 1930s of two people that suggested an all-meat diet might be compatible with health. I knew there was the data. There aren't 10 studies and there certainly aren't 30 or 50. And that's when the show blew up because, you know, it, it deserves to be uh, criticized that how can you counsel people as a medical doctor on one study 75, 80 years ago when we have, you know, hundreds of studies of other diets, whether it be the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, um, or, of course, any version you want to call it of a whole food plant-based diet like Dr. Neil Barnard has researched, Dr. Ornish has researched. So uh, it's quite an exciting segment. It's kind of going viral. I kind of suspected it would because I was there and watched it, and uh, it's pretty exciting TV and very authentic, actually. I really, I mean, it was like, for me, it was like a sign. It's like, okay, we're going to interview Dr. Joe Khan. And then I see this yesterday because I left the hospital. I, I did my, my three shifts yesterday and I saw this and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. What is this man saying? Yeah. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't believe it. So I urge everyone who is going to listen to this podcast to watch it. It's going to be on plant-based and I'm actually putting it now on our, um, on our Instagram as well. But speaking about, the carnivore diet or anything like that. So you and I are in the cath lab. We see all these young people, middle age, the old, old, any pretty much of any age at the moment coming in. So let's say that we ended up opening the vessels of this particular patient. And then the patient goes and says, okay, what can I do now? I mean, a plant-based diet, can this help reverse it? Do I still have to get the stent? Because a lot of people still think, okay, well, plant-based diet, great, but they want to refuse the stent. Right. Really good question. And my greatest joy and my greatest disappointment is the moment I, because about a quarter of my practice are people that have very serious heart disease and they've searched me out after five, 10, 15 plus years of dealing with heart disease a bypass, five stents, three hospitalizations, whatever their particular history is, that moment when I realized, my God, you've never been told anything about nutrition during this time period, even though you've been to Mayo, Cleveland, University of Michigan, wherever. But the light bulb, oh my God, can I help this person? And I can start gently, because they're gonna resist the fact that I'm not gonna go ape like the doctors show, just watch Forks Over Knives. Just watch The Game Changers. Just take this little tiny book and read it or a podcast and listen to it or something. And I can really help that person. Um, because you're, and, and it's so common that they've you know spent significant amount of their life, pain, suffering, and dollars, and they've not been told once that salad is better than you know beef stew, uh, which it is. Uh, a big salad every day is a great habit for sure. So... Um, it's so important, you know, Ben Franklin, an ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure, is the key. The data is very clear. If at age 20 to 25, check your blood pressure, your blood sugar, your blood cholesterol, and get on a clean diet that's largely plant-based or only plant-based, you're going to so up the odds. Now, that's what I fell into by coincidence, age 18, and at age 61, I have no medications. I never had an operation. I've never slept at night in the hospital. I still got my wisdom teeth, although 
I have to see the dentist to deal with all that. And nobody can guarantee that. And tomorrow I could have a medical illness. But to wake up every day and feel, you know, 20 years old when you're 40 years older, and that is a real blessing. And I think it's not an accident uh, that, I, it, that it's come out that way. And I try and share that with people, you know. But if you've already got the disease, kaboom. That's where the data comes in. That's where we have a randomized study by Dr. Dean Ornish that was published in 1990 that if you have clogged arteries and you change your lifestyle, plant diet, stress reduction, regular walking, quit smoking, you can start to reverse your plaque. Yeah. He ultimately added enough patients to the studies that his data and his program got approved by Medicare in 2010. You've had a heart attack. Uh, you live in St. Louis. You want to try and clean out the other arteries. You go to the Ornish Cardiac Rehab Program. Your insurance company will pay for it. The sad thing is there's only two of those. Ornish and the Pritikin has a similar insurance company approval. And there's relatively few programs around the country that have bought the franchise to call themselves and train that way. If there were one at every hospital, it would be great. Let me just follow up one thing because, you know, that was 1990. November 2019 at the American Heart Association annual meeting, 25,000 heart people in Philadelphia, the most expensive cardiac research study ever was announced. It's called the ischemia study. When it was announced, it was headlines everywhere. USA Today, Reader's Digest, New York Times, LA Times, a Time Magazine. 5,179 people with really bad blocked arteries. They were having the angina chest pressure. They flunked their stress test. They were in trouble. They agreed to either go on medication, an excellent diet, and some fitness, or go right to the cath lab to have the stent or the bypass. And in fact, Half of the 5,179 went on to stent or bypass. You would think, my God, these advances, and I'm not making fun of it. I'm a stent doctor. These advances are awesome. But when the data was added up three and a half years later, the lifestyle change and medication group lived just as much and were just as likely to be out of the hospital and free of further procedures than jumping right at the beginning into a bypass or a stent because some people die of a bypass or stent and some people have complications and you absolutely need to have bypass or stent as tools. But the study said, just like Orner said in 1990, and this study, the new one, wasn't the same degree of cardiac reversal diet as Ornish. God knows if they had done that, I think the results would have been perhaps profoundly more of an advantage to the lifestyle change. But still, 2019, you say to your doctor, whoa, is there anything I can do but rush to a stent? The authentic answer now should be Ornish cardiac rehab, Pritikin cardiac rehab, forks over knives style diet, get find a doctor that can help you do this, or I, I don't know, work with a dietitian that's excellent in plant-based nutrition. This is the best science in the world, just got a big boost, that we do too many bypasses and stents. Get a second opinion. I mean, if it's not life-threatening, and again, this is another, I guess, uh, notice, we are not saying that if you need a stent, if you're having a massive heart attack, that you don't get it. Don't be, oh, well, Alba and Dr. Khan said don't get a stent. No. If you're having an active heart attack, that's something that's 100% you need it, do it. Uh, They can be life-threatening. My general rule is, if you're, this actually happens. Doc, I'm calling you from the coronary care unit in Gainesville, Florida, Will you work with me so I don't have the bypass I'm supposed to have tomorrow? 
and I find out they're on a balloon pump and they're on IV nitroglycerin. Whoa, 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 whoa. Get what you need done. You're in a coronary care unit. But if you can call my office and say three weeks ago I underwent a catheterization, I feel great, but they tell me I need a stent. We might have the ability to go through all the data. I do a full consultation. I might be able to plug in a program that has just the same safety as going through a procedure that you might not be happy with the results at the end. People who have stents need to take powerful medications for at least 12 months and sometimes for life. They don't get that whole program that they're kind of locked into uh, a structure that they, they, they are locked into it. They have to do it. They have to. And let's talk about medications because, and this might be a little controversial, um, maybe because as a nurse, uh, the four things, the Mona, which is a, a pseudofin for um, morphine, for oxygen, then we need to give aspirin. Nitrates, yeah. Correct. Now, it's not that we are depending on medications, but some of these medications are going to save your life one way or the other. But right now, like Bayer aspirin, you see all their commercials all over the television saying, oh, one aspirin a day saved my life. But then Bayer got bought out by Monsanto. Other way. Yeah. Bayer bought Monsanto. Other way. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You know, Bayer is still the name brand. Uh, there must be a hundred other brands of aspirin. Of course, aspirin is plant-based, originally from Willow Bark. But, you know, the responsible message from you and me is if you've had a heart attack, a stroke, a stent, a bypass, and if your medical practitioner told you to take aspirin, in certain instances, it could save your life to take aspirin. So, you know, maybe buy a brand other than Bayer and object to the fact that they now own Monsanto. I agree. I get people that come to me, can't I take garlic or can't I use uh, turmeric to thin my blood after my stent. And I have to tell them, no, you can't. That's a medical experiment you don't want to run because if your stent clots off, that could be fatal. So yeah, I, my practice is a hybrid. I can't throw away every prescription. No, we can't. One. And even in doc, Dr. Ornish's program, the original data, there were no statins. So his reversal of plaque was without Lipitor. During the era Dr. Esselstyn did his important studies, he did use a statin in many of the patients because it was a little later and they were now available. So, I mean, you, you pick the best of what you have, but if you can legitimately avoid having mm -hmm. chest crack or legitimately avoid a stent that might go wrong or might go well, but might go wrong, um, know the data, ask about the ischemia study, ask about the Dr. Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn study, or do we have a Pritikin cardiac rehab or Ornish cardiac rehab in this region? Or go online and read about it. So I, I do have a question. Yes. What exactly is a stent? Good. And, you know, you said it like an expert. It's often called a stint or a shunt. It's a weird word. It actually was named after a dentist in the 1800 who would put something in your mouth to prop your mouth open while he worked on your teeth. And it's a little stainless steel coil that you can position right in a blockage in a heart artery, a brain artery, a leg artery, a kidney artery. It'll pop open like a Chinese finger trap, but it stays up. It's made of stainless steel that won't let it collapse back down. And it pushes the debris away. It doesn't cut it out. It doesn't send it down the artery. It just pushes the stuff up against the wall because you actually put it in at a pretty high pressure balloon. So you're left with permanently, you can't take it out, a usually maybe about an inch long stainless steel tube 
again, about the size of a number two pencil or smaller. And it treats one focal area. It's like a spot weld. It doesn't do anything for anything a centimeter this way, a centimeter that way, or the other arteries. You know, it's not a heart disease reversal program. There's no broccoli in the coating of that stent. That's a cool idea. Let's do that. <laughs> so, what is the cost of that in our healthcare, though? Because, I mean, we're doing, you said we're doing unnecessary stenting, and there is the medication factor as well that costs money. So, all of that, how much is that costing us? Yeah. You know, the overall healthcare budget in the United States is something like $3.7 trillion, 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 trillion dollars. That's more money than even Jeff Bezos has, $3.7 trillion. <laughs> and for that, we should have access to medical care and the best health results. I think the United States is about the 37th uh, rating for best health in the world. Uh, very often Israel is in Hong Kong or at the very top and they spend a fraction of the dollars we do. Um, and it is draining corporations and people. How many people are struggling to afford the premium on their healthcare even though it has a incredibly high deductible so they almost never get to use their health insurance. It's only for catastrophes, which we'd like to avoid. So um, I don't know the answer. Would implementing, like this ischemia study, could lead to policies before bypasser stents, everybody has to have a second opinion consult from a preventive doctor. It would cut 50% legitimately. You wouldn't get sued either because you're doing it according to science. But then you'd have to have a program to teach the patient about an exercise program, a healthy eating program, and follow up. Um, it would cut the health bill immediately, but it would also cut hospital and physician profit streams, and there's going to be pushback. Uh, I'm hopeful maybe a system like a Kaiser, where everything's all wrapped into one economic system. Every medical person is an employee, could actually institute mandatory second opinion ischemia studies, second opinion. Kaiser's already a very plant-friendly medical group. They could plug people into preventive lifestyle programs. It would be phenomenal, but it's going to take a little longer than the two months since the study was out. These things tend to make headlines, and then habits continue, and hospital administrators count the dollars. Yeah. Okay. So you have, you have some books and you're educating your patients. Like what are some of the things that you typically tell a patient that you're seeing or someone that may be going to one of your um, lectures? What are like some of the big takeaways that you will give them, especially for people who may be entering, because we're just coming off of the January, coming off, coming into the plant-based lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that the dual function of lowering the processed garbage in your diet, you know, treat your body like the miracle it is and understand that food can be a poison and food can be a healthful medicine, which not everybody gets that concept. Not everybody's ever been told that concept that food in type two diabetes and food in heart disease and food in erectile dysfunction and food in cancer is a very well-established function until you get that. You can't even get to square one. Why do I want to make any change? I like my cheeseburgers. But if they understand, I always ask guys, if you were 10 cheeseburgers away from losing your ability to have an erection, would you eat them or would you stop? 
because you are one of these days 10 cheeseburgers away. You just don't know which day it is. And they kind of get it. And it might make a, 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 you know, a little difference what's on their plate um, and all. But when I'm lecturing and such, there's kind of, if anybody remembers the movie War Games, there was like DEFCON 2 and DEFCON 5. If you're coming to me and saying, I'm supposed to have bypass surgery next Tuesday, and I'm looking for an alternative. I mean, man, we're going we're going full bore DEFCON 5. I mean, today is the day you're eating a no-added oil, whole food, plant-based. I want you out oatmeal in the morning and a giant salad. I'm going to show you how to make simple vegetable bean soup for dinner. And we're going to go through a couple suppliers that have oil-free, like I'll give a shout-out, uh, the Engine 2 food line at Whole Foods. That's all no-added oil, and I don't have any financial connection to that. That's Dr. Esselstyn's son, Rip, who works for Whole Foods. But it's a good resource. But if you're coming to me and, Doc, I'm looking for lifestyle change, but, you know, everybody in my family's eating meat all day long. It's going to be tough. And I'm willing to, you know, just let's watch Forks Over Knives and What the Health and Game Changers. And I write those on a prescription pad. You know, if they don't have it, I have a DVD for them. Otherwise, Netflix. Here's your homework. Here's one book or one article to read. And let's have one thing to the next visit. Eat two more apples a day or cut out eggs and bacon and eat oatmeal. And that's all we're going to do, and we'll talk about it. You give people ten things to do, you know, they might or might not do one of the ten. I just want to give them a, a really short list. It's still kind of shocking to me that um, some cardiologists, because I work with them, they don't agree with me when I'm – because our patients ask us after they get off the table, like, okay, well, what can I do? I'm like, well, let's cut back down on the animal products, and there's – more options of eating more fruits and vegetables and lots of water. And then I had some doctors come behind me. You're like, no, 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 I think you should be okay. And uh, you should just take your medications, take your Plavix, take your aspirin, and you should be good. Oh, moderation and everything. You know, let's go have more moderate heart attacks and moderate stents. I mean, the best example to give a shout out to a colleague of mine um, is actually in the Bronx. Maybe not the best, one of the best, but there's a very big medical system, Montefiore medical system, 2,800 beds. That's a big medical system. And it's in the Bronx. It's not a necessarily a high economic area by any choice. I've been there and right and left everywhere is fried food haven. But in every room from the emergency room to an inpatient, if you go to channel 42, they're playing forks over knives 24 seven over and over. So by the time your cardiologist comes in the next morning to say, you know, my name is Dr. Jones. I want to talk to you about a heart catheterization. You could possibly say, no, no, no. I want to do that broccoli thing I saw on Channel 42. I mean, that could be a really good model. I mean, if you've already made it into the hospital, it'd be great to have it in doctors' waiting rooms. The reality is when you talk to a cardiologist, Alba, in your system, I mean, I ask patients, and I always tell them, I'm not offending. Have you ever watched Forks Over Knives? You know who Dr. Ornish is. You know who Dr. Esselin is. You know, if they fail that quiz, it's not their fault. It's a failure of the medical system. But if you ask those cardiologists, they probably would fail the same quiz. And you just got to start at ground one. They're not going to hear grand rounds at the hospital on plant-based nutrition. It's, it's not funded by anybody. There's no pharmaceutical company sponsoring a speaker. So uh, it's this kind of thing that's going to expose more people to it. You know, give this... Give this interview to your cardiologist, then we're, you know, we got a chance. I always got, I always get that indulgent look like, oh, the nurse is speaking. I'm like, yes, this nurse has been doing vegan for 13 years and 
who's still running around and probably knows more about nutrition than you do because this is what I'm studying currently. Right. But um, and some of them are not open to it. But then there are the ones who start getting curious. And I feel like as medical professionals, yes, we need to renew our licenses every two years. Like we have to, we have to take classes, our CEUs. But I started to notice that some of them are researching more the whole food plant-based lifestyle one way or the other. Right. Um, and my hospital is considered a heart hospital and i sent you that through instagram the video that i took of what was provided on friday for the dinner the whole special menu that they had for super bowl and everything was completely fried and i, I was the one who actually wrote I, a year and a half ago a letter to my ceo i emailed him he actually got back to me he's like oh yes we are looking into whole, more whole food plant-based diets because even after any heart attacks that we fix or anything the menu for the patients are all overcooked vegetables, white bread, and some type of meat. There's not even fruit. And the only quote unquote fruit is a little cup. And I, t I was like, I need to email our CEO and what's going on. And I told him who I was, what I did and where I worked. And we need to start working on this, but the process is super, super slow. Yeah, you know, you, it's my hot button what you just brought up because when people ask, you know, you've had data for 30 years, why is it not better known? And I, I point the finger at hospitals because they could have been the real life teaching center to yes. say, while you're in the hospital, we're going to teach you about, I'd be happy if they taught the Mediterranean diet with materials, cut back on red meat, add in more whole grains, uh, legumes, vegetables and fruits, cut back on added sugars and drink water um, like they do in the Mediterranean basin, let alone actually teach a more uh, complete plant diet as an option. They've completely failed. I walk into one of my hospitals. It's a university hospital in Detroit. I'm on staff at. The first thing you see before you see registration is the Wendy's in the lobby. And it'll never leave. It makes so much money. Baconator burgers for the chemotherapy patient who's got the IV getting treated for colorectal oh. cancer on the ninth floor. The other hospital has wall burgers that I'm on staff on just to keep up. You know, if we're in 2020, that far off the mark, you know, hospital CEOs should be resigning and we should get people like you, Alba, running hospitals. And people like me, I've been, I've <laughs> paid the price. I have paid the price for being a constant critic of hospital food, both locally where I practice yeah. and nationally, uh, because they don't want to hear it and they no, don't no. want to. Because it's cutting, into, it's cutting into the profit. And I've actually been called into the office of my director and it's like, you can't say that. I'm like, why not? This is based on science. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not giving any counsel. What I said was we need to stop little of the animal products and increase our fruits and vegetables. No, but it's Baconator Burger, Alba, that will reverse their diabetes type 2, which actually brought it on. But I'm still not giving up. I wrote him another email yesterday after I saw that because it was even our salad bar was so bad. I was like, why are the leaves rotting? What am I supposed to see? Because sometimes, yeah, I may forget, but they didn't have anything. So I'm not giving up yet. Um, email him, and you you want to hear a funny thing? His daughter has been vegan for the last eight years because wow. he taught wow. me himself. That's the future. The future are the young medical students, nursing students, dental students, and such uh, that are seeing the change in culture and the acceptance of plant foods and plant diets. Uh, but it really is, frankly, I think almost criminal. You know, we've known since October 25th, 2015, the World Health Organization announced our analysis of the entire world scientific data 
bacon, pepperoni, and hot dogs cause colorectal cancer. Uh, it's a level one carcinogen, and they're selling it, and they're selling it to patients, to us, to everybody. Yeah, I'm unaware of one hospital in the United States that's taken a stance, given that body of science. We can't say that about other foods, but we can say it about that food and that disease. We need to ban bacon, hot dogs, and pepperoni, uh, both in pediatric and adult groups, for inpatients and guests. Nobody's had what we call in Detroit the cojones to actually embrace the science and make a change and educate people why. We're not punishing you. We care about you as a patient. They'd be getting great reviews. But no, you know, that dollar hot dog sells so well uh, that they won't take it away. Or the pizza for the fundraisers. Well, having said that, as we wrap up, um, we saw that you just closed your restaurant. Well, I actually have been involved. You know, a doctor in restaurants isn't obviously a typical thing. But I've been so involved in the food plant world. Uh, I love my kids, and I have a great kid with a business background that uh, we launched, uh, not knowing the restaurant industry super well, but we got a good team around us, the Ocean Eleven team, I call them. And we launched a very large and very beautiful restaurant, not quite as big as Sublime was in Fort Lauderdale, but pretty big, full bar, whole food, plant-based, Los Angeles style. This was no fried food restaurant. This was healthy. And we had an amazing run for about three years. And then the community we were in underwent some changes. Parking became difficult. The Beyond Meat Burger exploded. Nobody saw that coming. So every restaurant in the vicinity had vegan options that weren't present. We used to own the market to some degree. And the last couple of months have been tough. And something came up with the landlord and some legal issues. So we did shut down last night the main restaurant. Along the way, we also had a plant-based food truck that I put in Austin, Texas, because if you want a food truck, you want sunshine. It's doing incredibly well, and I've backed off out of that, but it's serving the population of Austin. It's called ATX Food Co. And finally, I have another restaurant in Detroit, wholly plant-based. It happens to be largely no added oil. Uh, it's called Green Space and & Go, and it's really fun and doing very well. Maybe the answer was do a small restaurant, not a big restaurant. So we're still there. Sean, we've got to go. We definitely got to go. <laughs> so uh, so if any, so anyone listening to this right now or watching maybe a clip, where can they find more information? You know, maybe some of the books, some of the upcoming events, your website, where can they get more information? So I appreciate that because everything is connected on one website, which is drjoelkahn.com, but that's D-R-J-O-E-L-K-A-H-N.com. Anybody can read that? There I am. Nice. That's my name. Hey, you know, there's a link to my clinic because I do see people and I have a license in Florida and I have seen people in Florida. I have my restaurant. My books are all there in a little store. I've got five with this new one coming out, book number six in uh March. Um, I'm all over Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, search me. And this uh, carnivore debates, you know, all over all those media channels right now. So I appreciate that. When this comes out, I'll share it all over the place, too. And, and I, know it's, I know it's not coming out just yet, coming out in March. Can you tell us anything about the new book? Any? Yeah, it's called Lipoprotein A, The Heart Silent Killer. And about half the book is the science, but in a very palatable way. What's this cholesterol I've never heard of? How, how frequent is it? How does it affect the heart and heart valves? 
And to some degree, what do we know in 2020? What can we do about it? There is some data that a plant diet does manage this cholesterol abnormality. So the back of the book is 50 original and amazing whole food plant-based recipes that are well worth uh, the price of the book. Anyways, it'll be relatively inexpensive. It's a readable book. Uh, my most recent book before that is called The Plant-Based Solution. It's on Amazon. It just came out in paperback after a year in hardcover. Uh, it's got uh, great recipes also, as well as the science of plant-based uh, medicine. So good resources. Thank you. And I'll be in, they're called the, the Palm Beach Veg Fest, but it's held in Boca Raton. And I want to say, is it March 27th? I think that's the day that it's occurring. But you can look up the Palm Beach Veg Fest. And Alba, any, any final remarks from you? Yes, I need you to cook. When you come down here to Florida, I need you to cook something Jewish. I think the only Jewish thing I've had is probably pancakes with, like, applesauce. Yeah, the potato pancakes around December. Um, you know, authentic Jewish cooking is not necessarily automatically plant cooking. Uh, we have carrots and raisins. It's called simis. We'll come up with something. And truly, you know, everything can be modified to some degree. I mean, there's amazing vegan sushi now. I mean, it's not going to be tuna, but you don't need tuna. Even I was, with my background, even with my Peruvian background. Out to, uh, shout out to a friend of mine in Lauderdale. About three weeks ago, I was eating at Vegan Fine Foods in Fort Lauderdale. And mm -hmm. they had from watermelon a sushi-like appetizer. And I can't compare it to tuna. I haven't had tuna in 40-plus years. But it looked and sort of had a mouthfeel like I think tuna would be. But it was from watermelon. Very creative. So, yeah, there's good places right in your community that are doing pretty yes, cool that's wonderful. We love that in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. And now we also go a lot to the West Palm Beach area because there's some new restaurants always popping oh, up. No, yeah, Miami is mas caliente for vegan right now. Oh my God, we love it. We love it, love it, love it, love it. And we've made very good friends with the uh, with the restaurant owners. So right. it kind of helps. <laughs> so the first so so, final remarks, um, Dr. Joe Khan, what, any final remarks for our, our listeners? Anything like to, to drive it home as far as everything that we've been talking about? Well, actually, you know, I just left before I logged on with you guys a lecture by the professor at Harvard who ran the School of Public Health for 30 years. An MD, he's published over a thousand research papers, Walter Willett. Been kind of a hero of mine, and I've only met him now twice in the last three months, including again today. And, you know, from a very high level, it's health, it's the planet and it's animals. And we've talked almost exclusively about human health and how we can hack our human health to a higher level. But just to end with the idea, when your plate is full of plants, you've also avoided an animal suffering, and you've also lowered your carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emission significantly. And it matters. I mean, the largest study on this topic came out last year, 2019, called Eat Lancet, World Experts. Their conclusion was the only diet that's going to let us have 10 billion people by 2050 is going to be a diet where most people on the planet are eating plant foods. Not feeding plants to animals, filtering it through an animal to eat their flesh, but eating what the animal eats directly. So we cut, we'll have less animals on the planet. That's what we want. Less animal soilage on the planet, less destruction of forest on the planet. 
yeah, we're not going to go out there and shoot them all. It's just slow and steady attrition in the number of, uh, you know, animals used for feed because they are destroying the planet. So do it for all the reasons. Do it for your grandchildren if you don't want to do it for yourself or your children. And, and we want to thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Joe Kahn, for being on our podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen thank to past episodes, get the show notes for this episode, go to soflowvegans.com slash podcast. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. We would like to thank Dr. Joel Kahn again for agreeing to appear on our podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes in the weeks to come. Be sure to visit our community page to learn about all the exciting deals we have and ways you can support us. So go to SoFlowVegans.com community for more information. Even if you're not local to South Florida, you can take part in all of the great things we have going on. And the best way to do that is to continue listening to this podcast, sharing, liking, subscribing, and helping us get the word out. And if you want to listen to future episodes or listen to past episodes or chime in, leave voicemails, all of this can be done on our podcast homepage at soulflowvegans.com slash podcast. We want to thank you so much for listening and being a supporter for SoFlow Vegans. And we look forward to seeing you next time. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast.